It's good to see you guys here. Um, Today we are finishing our current teaching series that we've entitled Sent. We've been spending the summer moving through the first 17 chapters of the book of Acts, and this morning we're going to be completing this series. Now this series is based on an idea, and the idea is this. The idea is that church does not exist to bring people in so that we feel good about the fact that we're growing and good things are happening and wow, how cool are we because all these people are coming. That the church exists for the sole and express purpose of people being molded and shaped and formed to go out into the city of Austin and beyond seven days a week to live lives of significance. That we are sent out by God. That this city ought to look different because you and I are here. That we are to be witnesses to God's love and to God's grace. And that is not the majority message that is out there in our city today. So how do we do that? And what are the different ways that we're called to embody God's love and God's grace in this world? Today we're going to be talking about something that for some folks could make us a little uncomfortable. And it's understandable why it could make us a little uncomfortable. But it's about how you and I are called to be witnesses. And one part of that witnessing is that we're called to be telling people who are not following Jesus about Jesus. We are called to be witnesses to the majority of our city and our world who don't share a Christian worldview, who don't share a Christian viewpoint of life, of what God's love and God's grace is all about. Now, there's a lot of reasons that that stuff can make us uncomfortable. There's a lot of cultural baggage or bad examples of this. And we've talked about that in this series. But here's the thing. No matter how many bad examples of evangelism we can point to that make us uncomfortable doing it, there is no way of getting around the fact it is still our call. So what does that mean biblically? How do we think about how God has sent us to be witnesses of God's hope and God's love to the world around us, to the city around us. We're going to get into that by looking um, at our last section of Scripture. It's from Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22. And this is where, as we saw last week, Paul is in Athens. He's at the Areopagus. He is debating uh, kind of truth with uh, these philosophers, these Greek philosophers from Athens who are there. And these are the words that he says. Some of this we read last week. But these are the words that he says. He says, Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The Lord God who made the world and everything in it, he made... He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that this morning, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, that you would speak to us, you would open our minds and hearts to how we are called to be sent from this place 
as witnesses of your goodness and your grace and your love. We pray that you would teach and mold and shape us in Jesus' name through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we said, that there's a lot of cultural baggage that can go with the idea of evangelism or witnessing, and I get that, and we've talked about that. But at the heart of some of our discomfort is an accepted mindset. It's a mindset of how our world works that we impose on the idea of witnessing or being sent out into the world that we think disqualifies us from being the ones to do the witnessing or the evangelism, okay? And I want to exhibit, I want to I illustrate this mindset um, in, a, in a story because the mindset is, is very real for us. And the mindset is, is that you have to have certain qualifications, certain credentials, certain experiences before you can be in any kind of teaching position to tell anyone else what they should do. Right? And that works in most every setting. Let me give you an example of how embedded this mindset is in us. This past week, I was traveling for almost the entire week. And what I was doing was that I was invited to attend a conference in Princeton. I can always count on you, man. So you didn't hear your part in that because I need you to be impressed. I was invited to attend a conference in Princeton. There we go. It is. It's pretty amazing. I'll be honest with you. I enjoyed that ooh and the feeling that I got from people leading up to the trip when folks asked me before I left, like, so, like, what are you, what are you doing next week? Which most people don't ask. But for the few who did, like, what are you doing next week? It's like, well, funny you should ask. I have been invited to go and to speak at a conference in Princeton. And people often go, that's right, because it is pretty amazing. <laughs> now, you know why you ooh at that word. I know why you ooh at that word. I liked that word being associated with me, Princeton, right? It's like, it's like the top of so many different kind of fields. If you are participating in a conference at Princeton, I mean, that means you've got something to say, right? That means you've got something that people need to listen to. Right? You've proven yourself at a certain angle. Now, the reason we ooh at the word Princeton is because of Princeton University. The part I didn't tell you is I wasn't speaking at Princeton University. <laughs> I was speaking at a great place, a wonderful place, Princeton Theological Seminary that is across the street from the university and connected in some different ways. It's an amazing place. But I didn't feel the need when people ooed <laughs> to clarify that right? It was awesome, for example, on the plane. And some of you guys are nicer human beings than I am. All of you are probably nicer than I am. Meaning that on flights, you like to talk to your neighbor. I'm not one of those people. Like, I kind of like to sit down. It's like, okay, just kind of got my time now. And yet the person next to me was like, so you're traveling to Newark. Uh, what, are you, what are you traveling for? I'm like, funny, you should ask. I have been invited to go and to attend a conference in Princeton. He was like, wow. I'm like, I know. It's pretty amazing. It happened again after the flight because I had to get a train from the Newark airport to Princeton Junction Station. And for the non-Princeton material in Newark, they have these kiosks, these electronic kiosks to buy tickets, but most people can't figure out a kiosk. They're not Princeton people, right? And so there's, a, there's an employee who stands there who helps you navigate the ticketing thing. And he was nice enough to do that for me, even though I was going to Princeton, but he asked me, it's like, so where are you going? And I said, Princeton. And he said, he did. He was like, wow, Princeton. I'm like, I know. There was a part of me that wanted to turn around to the people behind me like, that would be me going to Princeton. 
just in case any of you wanted to know. And I got my ticket. And then this older gentleman who was standing behind me at that moment said, I hear you're going to Princeton. I said, yes, I am. And when I turned around, he was the embodiment of a Princeton scholar, which let's be clear, I am not. He was like in, uh, he was an older guy, had a great beard, Watson, you would have liked the beard. He was in a, a tweed coat, um, was there, and he said, well, I am going to Princeton too. Now, he had a, he had a, a distinct accent. It was clear that English wasn't his first language. Um, and he said, I've never taken the train before. Uh, maybe we could go together and find the right train track. And I'm like, of course we can. We're two Princeton men, right? We can find <laughs> the right train track. And so he gets his ticket, and we pick up our bags, and as we're walking to the, to the platform to catch our train, he said, uh, I don't normally take the train. The university normally sends a car to pick me up. Um, but my flight was late, and so the car left and took some of the scholars, and I think because he was benevolent, like rather than making the driver drive all the way back to Princeton to pick him up, he just decided to take the train. Now, I didn't tell him that the place I was going didn't even let me know you could drive to the airport. It was like, you take the train. And so, uh, you know, but I said, okay, that's fine. We're, so we'll do this together. And he said, because this isn't my native home uh, and my native language, you can help me make sure I get off at the right station. And we kind of did, a, like, I guess, a Princeton chuckle, oh, you know, like that. And so we get to the train, and we get onto the train, and the train worked where it was a car with a middle aisle, like just going right down the middle, and on each side there were benches, okay? So they weren't individual seats with armrests. There were just benches, like three or four people could fit on. You put your bags up, and the train was like 90% empty, right? So that's always great because you get on, and it's like it's 90% empty. And I moved to a bench that had a clear view of a window so I could see outside because Newark is awesome to look at. And and um, I slid, I'm sorry, if any of you are from Newark, it's a beautiful city, and uh, went and sat um, next to the window, and I don't know if it's a Princeton thing, I don't know if it's an academic thing, I don't know if it's a Norwegian thing, but even though the train was 90% empty, he came and sat right next to me, like his hip was touching my hip, okay? And so you're kind of like, man, this is, but I don't want to act like I don't, you know, that it's like... If this is a Princeton thing, I want to act like I know what I'm doing, right? So I'm just like, okay, um, maybe we cuddle on the train to Princeton. That just must be a thing. And he looked at me and said, are you, are you going for a conference in Princeton? And I said, yes, I am. And I said, how about you? Are you going for a conference in Princeton? And he said, yes. I'm going for a continued conversation that's been taking place for a few years uh, around applied mathematics. Now, friends, if there is ever anything that is a conversation stopper with me, <laughs> applied mathematics would be close. I don't know what that means, right? My daughter's sixth grade math homework I can't do. And so I said the only thing I could think of, which was, cool. <laughs> and then I thought, I don't think that's how people in Princeton talk, right? And he said, yeah, I guess, I guess it is cool. He said, what conference are you going for? I said, well, I'm going for a conference on missional theology, which is what the conference was about, all the stuff we're talking about here, how we're sent by God out into the world. And he goes, missional theology? I said, yeah. Like about religion? I said, yeah, yeah, like about religion. He goes, is it Christian? I said, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a Christian thing. He goes, and he scrunched his face, but he goes, is it being hosted by the university? And I had to say, no, actually, it's, it's not. It's, it's across the street. The seminary, which is a really good seminary, uh, right there, but it's, it's across the street. 
And I've never had anyone do anything like this to me before. He goes, oh, so you're going to Princeton. (laughs) But you're not really going to Princeton. Seriously. And then in the bench, and I'm seeing, he turned his back like a little bit, like just a little bit, and he pulled out his iPhone from his very nice tweed jacket and started looking at like Norwegian Facebook. And we didn't talk again until we got to the Princeton Junction station. We're going to come back to that story. But here's my point to illustrate this mindset that we're talking about. I know why you ood at the word Princeton. You know why you ood at the word Princeton. I know why I liked you ooing at the word Princeton, right? Princeton represents kind of something that is a top rung of how you and I think, which is that if you are at Princeton talking about something, you have earned something special and people should listen, right? I don't know the first thing about applied mathematics. I don't even want to know anything about applied mathematics. But if I wanted to know something about applied mathematics, this guy from Norway is probably the brother you're going to talk to, right? Because if anybody from Norway is being invited to Princeton University to be a part of a conversation on applied mathematics, that tells you something, right? And it's not a bad mindset. You and I have this mindset on all kinds of things, and normally it's healthy. Let me give you some examples. The flight that I took from Austin to Newark, if you're flying on a plane, you don't want someone in the pilot seat who's like, yeah, I just feel like I'll be pretty good at this. Like, let's give it a whirl and see what happens, right? You want someone who has been trained. You want someone who has been licensed. You want someone who has bad experience because he holds your, she holds your life in their hands, right? The mindset works really well. Or take example um, if you're going in for surgery. You don't want someone operating you who's going, hey, I feel like I'll be pretty good at this, right? You want someone that has been trained, that the academy has looked at and gone, this person is an actual surgeon, we have trained them, they are experienced, they are licensed, they can do this. Before they, you don't want someone who's like, hey, I like the game of operation. Like, I'm I'm really good when we play it at home, trust me, I think this will go real well. I kind of know where your spleen is. Yeah, the, the mindset works. To be the senior pastor of this church, I have to be ordained. In our tradition to be ordained, I have to have at least a master's degree, right? It probably didn't hurt that I have a doctorate. Those things say to people, this person has some degree of experience and training and learning and knowledge so that we can give them some authority to serve in a, in a role. It's not a bad mindset. But here's the problem when we talk about what it means to be sent, When we take that logic and apply it to the realm of evangelism and witnessing to others and being sent, it allows us to disqualify ourselves from ever having to do it. Because what we do at that moment is we sit there and go, well, I mean, I'm not an expert on the Bible. There's things I don't know about it. There's doubts I have about why things work a certain way. That someone could ask me a question about why God works or doesn't work, and I could be like, I don't really know the answer to that. So I'm not, I, the, the, the witness needs to be the Princeton guy on the train who's the expert at this. I'm not that when it comes to the Bible. Or when it comes to morality, right? I mean, let's be honest. If we had to take a, a moral test, who of us should sit there and go, hey, I'm an expert on morality and can tell everybody else how they should live, Right? I mean, 
many of us struggle with issues of gossip. Many of us struggle with issues of self-centeredness. Many of us are impatient. Many of us feel better about ourselves when someone else gets torn down around us. We have all kinds of things that exist in our life where we're like, well, I'm not the Princeton guy on the train when it comes to the Bible. I'm not the Princeton guy on the train when it comes to telling people how to live a right, good life. So I'm just going to kind of not do that. That'll be somebody else whose job that is. See, it's just natural for us to take that mindset and apply it to the realm of faith and being sent. And that is a mistake because our faith is the place where it doesn't work anymore. Look at the words, and we're not going to bring them up here today, but if you remember the words or go back and read what Paul actually says at the Areopagus, he doesn't say anything at the center that we, of, of philosophy that we just read that in all honesty, if you read it, you're kind of going, wow, I never thought of that before. That's just groundbreaking. I mean, what he said and what we just read is he goes, he's talking about God. And he's like, hey, God's not made by silver. God's not made by gold. God can't be conjured up by human imagination. God has created all things in this world. And we are God's offspring. God has claimed us as his sons and daughters, fully reconciled to God. Paul, almost everything he says is just talking about how incredible God is. He's not giving them these elaborate things of how they're supposed to live as Athenians. What he's doing is he's just saying, look how amazing God and God's love are. For each and every one of us. And in verse 30, he gives one thing that we're supposed to do. One thing. And he says the one thing that we've got to do is to repent. And here's the thing, guys. There's no PhD in repenting. There's no Princeton person on the train who's the expert trained repenter. All repentance is is acknowledging that we're not the Princeton guy on the train. That we're the person sitting there going, yeah, I'm not really in that club. I'm somewhere else. I'm kind of across the street from telling people how they should be. If that's you, then you're exactly the person God's looking for. If you're the perfect embodiment of Christian morality, God actually is not interested in it because you're going to do more harm than good. Repentance is at the core of everything we are. Everything we are. Everything we do is about repenting, is about acknowledging our brokenness, is about acknowledging our incompleteness, is about acknowledging the fact that the good news is not about how we live, but about how God loves us despite ourselves, despite our sin, despite our self-centeredness, despite our fear, despite our brokenness, God looks at us and claims us as his own. It is all about grace. And so witnessing is not about being the expert in telling other people how much they need Jesus, so much as it's about us being honest with other people about how much we need Jesus. You see the difference in those things? It's not about us having the mindset that we've often taken, which is that evangelism is about you stamping your ticket to heaven, right? I mean, that's part of evangelism is what happens when we die. But the repentance Paul's calling them here to is not just so that they, have a, they learn the secret handshake to go to heaven, but it's about how they live in the here and now. That this lifestyle of repentance is about how we are changed and transformed, how we find life. Think about how, how the church works. Think about some of the most amazing ministries even that take place here at Covenant. Covenant. They are built upon the explicit understanding that we are broken people in need of repentance and God loves us and is faithful anyway. Take, for example, Alcoholics Anonymous. 
One of the things that takes place in this building every day of the week. We're one of the largest AA chapters in all of the city of Austin. It's an amazing thing. Hundreds of people every week are finding hope and wholeness through the ministry that takes place in these walls. And how does that happen? How does that work? Well, it's deeply embedded in Christian theology because people walk into that setting and the thing you have to do in any kind of recovery group in the beginning is say, hey, guess what? I'm an addict. We start there. I'm a broken person. Let's start this. This might be the one place where I'm not telling you how amazing it is or how my kids got into Georgetown or how awesome the awards are or how I had the best vacation ever. This is the one place where the starting point is I am incomplete. I am broken. And not that we stay there and feel guilty and beaten up, but it's in that place when we repent, when we say, I need to move in a new direction, which is what repentance is, that we say that God gets involved and lives are changed and healing happens and transformation is real and people find hope in that. But it doesn't start with, hey, I'm a pretty amazing person and I've just got these couple of things going on in my life. It starts with, I am broken and need God to do something here. Or take covenant groups that we're signing up for now, small groups. Why do I personally believe in this ministry so much? I believe in it because it has changed my life and my marriage. I don't know if you know this, but to be the senior pastor of a church like Covenant, there's kind of a pressure that goes along with it sometimes. And one of the pressures that goes along with it is you're kind of like expected to be on this pedestal at times, right? Like, well, I just sort of know how things go, and I can speak into any situation, and I don't struggle with things, and my marriage is perfect, and my kids think I'm wonderful, and, and here's the thing. That's not true. It's not true. And so covenant groups, small groups have been the place where Beth and I can go in our marriage, and it's the, one of the only places we walk into, and from the beginning, we're like, hey, guess what? We're not perfect. Hey, our marriage isn't perfect. Our family's not perfect. And neither is yours. So we're all starting there. That's a common starting point where we are. And we need to kind of repent of some things. And we need to ask, what does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a wife? What does it mean to be a dad? What does it mean to be a mom? What does it mean to be a friend? What does it mean to be a son or a daughter? What does it mean that God's design is? And how does God change me from the patterns I'm in into something healthier and more beautiful than what I can do on my own? The whole ministry of the, of the church is built around this idea that we are broken people who need to repent. All of us in this room are. And the good news is not that, hey, you can discipline yourself and become different. The good news is God loves you anyway. God loves you despite what you deserve. God wipes the slate clean in every one of our lives when we ask for it every single moment and frees us and sends us out credited with the righteousness of Jesus. It's an amazing thing. It's an incredible thing. It's good news. And all Paul is doing at Athens is saying, hey, I'm a broken person who needs to repent. Who's with me? Witnessing and evangelism is not about you being the perfect moral biblical scholar who can point at other people and tell them how much they need Jesus. Witnessing biblically is a lot more about you being willing to be honest about how much you need Jesus and letting others come in and hear that and consider how they might drink from the cup of grace themselves. You're sent. You're sent 
be an imperfect, broken vessel who can say, I know, isn't it amazing that God shows up again and again in my life? That's what witnessing is. It's talking about how good God is, not how great we are. Which takes us back in the end to my Norwegian friend in a train car in New Jersey who didn't speak to me, even though we were cuddling. And I felt like I, felt like I was welcoming him. Didn't speak to me for 45 minutes. And when they announced we were getting to the Princeton Junction statement, station, he stood up and said, this is our station. You remember when we got onto the train, what he said is, you can help me to make sure I don't miss the station. I had sunk so low that he figured I couldn't figure out the station anymore. So he stood up and he's like, this, this, this is our station. And you're like, thank you. And as he stood up and got his suitcase, he looked at me and the train's slowing down the station. He said, young man, I want to tell you two things that you need to hear. As an academic, as a mathematician, as a scholar who has devoted himself to the academy, I believe that science has proven the existence of God. There is some creator that had to be here to set this in motion. But for you or any other religion to claim that you have any more insight into God than anyone else perpetuates a lie that has only made our world worse off and it has done irreparable harm. And I wish you would think about that. I said, thank you. Guys, this, this, this guy, he's 10 times smarter than me. There was nothing I could say. There was no clever comeback. There was no, well, let me tell you the logic of things and how it really works, that I was going to convince him of anything. And all I said, as the train was slowing down, was, I understand what you're saying. But as I understand religion, what they hold in common is that religions teach us how to become more righteous. How to follow the right rules or eat the right foods or pray enough times or do enough stuff so that we kind of work our way up and better ourselves to become more faithful. I said the difference in Christianity is that it says we can't do that. It's not possible. And I said, the thing I've learned in my life is that I am far too messed up to find hope in anything other than grace and forgiveness. That's the only hope I got. And he said, huh, okay. And he picked up a suitcase and he walked down the train. And I stood up and got my suitcase and walked after him, and we got out to the platform, and he pulled the handle up in a suitcase to pull it behind him, and I pulled the handle up on mine. And he then turned and looked at me and said, a religion that is only based on grace and forgiveness. My ex-wife and adult son who no longer speak to me would probably say that's the only hope I have as well. It's worth considering. And he walked off. 
God is not looking for evangelists and witnesses who can be the embodiment of great arguments and witty rhetoric and perfect lives to tell others how to live. God is looking for imperfect people who can say what it's like to be forgiven and to find God even when we don't deserve it. That is good news. And that's a story you can share if you're willing to. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as broken men and broken women, we give thanks that we have found the cup of grace is available to us to drink from. That you forgive us even when we mess up again and again and again, and that you see us with the beloved eyes of a father who sees his son and welcomes us in fully. Lord, it is good news that we have experienced, and I pray that you would help us to be honest with those around us that we'll meet this week about how much we need you, about how broken we are, and about how faithful you are to us most especially when we know we don't deserve it. May we live and share our imperfections and share of your grace and your love and your faithfulness this day, this week, so that others might come and drink from the living waters as well. For indeed, we all need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.